Parenting is a war of attrition. I'm your host, Danny Paul. With me, as always, is the vice host, Leon Coventry. Leon. Danny. Happy right. Friday. Happy Friday to you, sir. Because we're all over the place with this show. Well, we are now recording on a Friday because last night you were at the House of Mouse with your little one flipping the bird. Yeah, well, they're at 30% occupancy. And, and uh, you know, you wouldn't know it by looking at it around because you know you're there's people everywhere but and the lines were almost exclusively outdoors so you know you look at these massive lines and you're like i'm not i'm not waiting in line for that and then but they're everybody's six feet apart you know and so the line is incredibly long so there's hmm. really no lines longer than 30 minutes which was nice but it, you couldn't tell that by looking at it uh outside of that it was great great day great weather uh hadn't been to uh the house of mouse in over 20 years so wow. it was nice to see it in a different light felt smaller than i remember it but uh being there with a little four-year-old is for the first time is pretty fun it's really great sure. when they're old enough to recognize all the characters isn't it mm -hmm. yeah yeah now did you go to california adventure too or just the core land yeah just just the core disneyland that's all Yep. And Very uh, good, my friend. Very that was good. enough. That's enough. <laughs> so they do like day. Space Mountain and all that shit? Do you go inside for that? Uh, they, it was there, but no, we did not go in. No. Uh, right. it, I mean, we did anything she wanted to do. So, of course, we started with It's a Small World because I wanted to make sure she enjoyed rides. She's never been on rides. So, and she's very scared of that kind of stuff. So, you got to start with that ride. Oh, wait, this is what a ride's like? Okay. Yeah, right. and you got to get this. that one out of the way because that one will drive you crazy. <laughs> that's true it was a story i remember from a couple of years ago where a, a, a portly gentleman who was too heavy for the ride got the boat stuck and he no. was stuck in the boat for hours <laughs> and you can oh, imagine you get stuck in one of those boats they can't do anything they can't flood the channel anymore to raise the boat it's just like Sorry, dude, you're too heavy. Like we should not have let two other people on the boat with you. And you can just imagine the torture in his brain of it's a small world after all. On oh, I was just going to ask, was he stuck in the For ride? Hours. In the ride? Yep. Yeah, you should, you should uh, look it up. It's a pretty oh, scary that, story. Well, it's scary to miserable. us as parents because we know that music. Ding, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> scary stuff. Scary stuff. A good one. All right, so what's your brown for this evening? Yeah, tell me, you, you go first. I will go first. I'm actually excited about this one. I've had it before, but it's a little bit uh, more on the rare side. And um, this is in honor of us talking about the history of bourbon oh. last week. So I'm going with Elijah Craig. Oh. Uh, and this is Toasted Barrel. See, that's the thing about Elijah Craig. If you ever go shopping for Elijah Craig out there, all the bottles damn there look the same. Hmm. You have to, you got to read the fine print. They're different. And uh, this is the toasted barrel, 94 proof. Delicious. Delicious. Ding dong. 
Friend of the show will be joining us as soon as he logs on. Uh, from myself, we just spent the last couple of months talking about your brown. So I went ahead and brought myself back to the way it was. Can you see that? I, I, all I see is label. Oh, McKellen 12. So I decided mm -hmm. to abandon the shores of the United States and bring it back to the old country where we could go to the north side. And I brought myself some McCallum. 12 years, and it smells just as angry as a British insurrection. <laughs> oh. That's a good one, though. That's good. Nothing wrong with McCallum. Mm. Like that. It says here, double cask. That's a thing. <laughs> Island single malt scotch whiskey. But, you know, it's 43 43 percent so that's what 100 no 86 proof proof oh that's lightweight yeah so Any while mr that? jones is warming up he can jump in with us we'll catch up with him on his brown later let's uh let's jump into the show shall we we shall let's go to brown news this is the darkest brown you got yeah, and I got news for you. Tonight's brown news comes to us from this one comes to us from the Whiskey Advocate. So, Craft Whiskey Distillers New Gambit could be Amaro, spelled A M A R O. What's that in the NATO alphabet? In the NATO alphabet? Alpha Mike, Alpha Romeo. Oh, that one. Oscar. Oscar. Bitter isn't a flavor most people seek out on its own, but when balanced with sweetness, it can be downright pleasurable. Many whiskeys contain this duality. Think of how a mature bourbon marries together sweet caramel and vanilla flavors with notes of bitter oak and walnuts. Amaro, a liqueur originally hailing from Europe, makes the interplay of bitter and sweet its focus. Amaro, Italian for bitter, plural amari, is made by steeping botanicals and spices in neutral spirit, which is then sweetened. Historically, Amaro was made with local plants and intended for medicinal use, of course, generally as a digestive aid. While salubrious applications have faded away, the allure of its richly layered bitter botanicals still attracts sophisticated palates. You ever had Amaro? I have never had Amaro. How about you? I have not. Uh, I'm a little interested in this kind of stuff. So there's a bunch of other things that are going on now with Aperol spritzes, and there's a number of different liqueurs and uh, binders that go to bay. I just got done talking to uh, Lady Catelyn of the British Isles last week, and she says that vermouth on the rocks, white vermouth on the rocks is a thing. Wow. I mean, that, that's just something you, you trickle into vodka. You're just drinking it all, all by itself? Yeah. So I, I asked her, I said, isn't that a, you know, isn't that a mixer? It's like, I'm not going to go and have a nothing and Coke. You know, you got to have something with it. And she corrected me. So contraire, sir, it is very common for liqueurs to be a refreshing summer drink. So the picture we see here, St. George Spirits Bruto Americano Amaro is a sturdy substitute for Campari. Again. This is kind of moving away from the brown, but it's an interesting idea. The article goes on to say several American whiskey distillers are producing Amari that showcase regional ingredients. High wire distilling, 
St. George Spirits, Green Bar, Bully Boy Distillers are all featured in the article. Uh, but it's a bitter, I don't know if you'd call it an aperitif, uh, so to speak. But the idea is, yes, you're going to drink it by itself. You're not necessarily going to mix it with anything. So you've got Cafe Amaro from Jay Rigger and Co. And that's coffee. You can okay. make it with a mint julep. Um, Green Bar Distillery's Grand Poppy tastes like flower petals and bracing citrus. And that's suggested for an Amaro spritz. Uh, you could do high wire distilling Southern Amaro, which is root beer mixed with sweet tea. That's interesting. That that's what I want some, to try. Yeah, that conjures some images, doesn't it? St. George Spirit's Bruto Americano tastes like balsam bows, sandalwood, and rosemary. Uh, this is an interesting one here. Do you know what a Boulevard DA is? Nope. Okay. We'll put that on the list to check out later. Uh, founding spirits taste like raisinets, mint, and chamomile for an Amaro daiquiri. Hmm. We're missing out on some of this. This, this must be the era of the interesting drink. Uh, Newport <laughs> distilling acrimony Amaro, zingy peppercorn, and zippy citrus. Goes well in a gin martini. You gin man. I am a gin man. You do like I gin. Do like okay. a, yeah. Like I've to always get got Bombay in the freezer. The other interesting tidbit from Lady Catelyn was that a gin and tonic is kind of a go-to anything. So if you're mm -hmm. in London and you're hanging out uh, at a pub or otherwise, people will just bring out a tray of gin and tonics, you know, as if to say, would you like an ice water? And she well, says, that's just the way it is. And it's an art and they don't mess around. The hotel I used to stay at every time I went to Lisbon, they made incredible gin and tonics and they would ask you what gin do you want and you know they ask that all the time in america you know what kind of what do you want in your uh old-fashioned you know if you're going to pick a bourbon that's fine but they're still going to make it the same way and put the same uh you know amount of bourbon amount of bitters whatever but there when you say yeah you know i want i want it with bombay well then they make it totally different they have different mixes they you know oh, oh you want the bombay well then i'm going to use a fever tree i'm going to use some uh, some cloves in it and i'm going to use this oh you wanted hendrix gin well then i'm going to make it with a, a totally different mixer uh totally different spices they're not the same and it's not just replacing one gin with another with the same recipe so they they really do take those gin and tonics very seriously and you really do have to you really do have to know what you want and what you like about gin because they're they're um, they're very serious about it. And that uh, have you tried aviation gin, Ryan Reynolds, pushing gin? For most for most people, I it's a good gin to kind of get into that world because it it doesn't have the pine flavor that most gins do. So it's more palatable. So it's it's probably one of the smoothest, easiest drinking gins. Much to this point, though, of you know, talking about the Amaros, it, it also isn't as bitter and it doesn't, you know, it's not as stout. So I guess it depends on what you're you're looking for, obviously. Everything always depends. That's my favorite phrase in the world. But it uh, it definitely, if you want to start limping in and, and trying gin out, I think you should start with aviation gin. I think Mr. Reynolds has something there. Well, apparently aviation is a drink. So it would be like if you named a vodka cosmopolitan, mm. which I thought was interesting. It was an interesting choice. Now there's that whole uh, plane flight 
motif. You've got the propellers on the bottle and it looks very much like, uh, you know, like a 1920s or 1930s fuselage for a plane. So it's, it's kind of got its own thing going there, but I was thinking about this now at, at, this goes down to my level of knowledge on the topic, but there have to be hundreds of whiskeys. There have to be mm-hmm. thousands of tequilas. There have to be hundreds to thousands of vodkas. Are there that many gins? Like I thought we could do a random, like let's come up with five bourbons. We can obviously come up with five bourbons. Let's come up with five mm-hmm. tequilas. Let's come up with five vodkas. All mm-hmm. I could come up with is Gordon's beef eaters, Bombay aviation. Hendrix. Hendrix. Yeah. Hey, you did it. Right. But you have a sixth. I think monkey shoulder makes one too. They make okay. uh they 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 make one obviously it's a, a whiskey brand too. They have, they have a whiskey, but I think they make a gin because I've I've seen it on the shelf. Just seems like a rarity, you know. If you're in gin, that's that's a very bold choice. Uh, let's round out these last two here. So we have Tattersall Amaro, which tastes like raisins and creme de menthe. You sip that one neat. Hmm. A liqueur neat. Yeah. To each his own. Last one here is Bully Boy Amaro. Tastes like candied orange wedges, a summery punch with fresh fruit. Now that sounds good. So we may have to check out some of this Bully Boy tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, uh, they all they all sound good, but they I I can't get it out of my head that mixers are, and I know they're not, but they they're syrup. You're putting syrup in a drink to sweeten it or sour it or whatever. It's it's not the drink. So. Hey, I mean, I'll give it a try, I guess, because, you know, for the sake of the show. The article finishes up, as you would with whiskey, try sipping Amaro neat at first to get a feel for its flavor. When you're ready to mix it, start simple and do a 50-50 split of Amaro and whiskey. The interplay of both ingredients' inherent complexity generates exciting new flavors. Another customary way to enjoy Amaro is well-chilled after a meal which helps to subdue the bitterness, or you might add some to your espresso, like maybe. Uh, that's got some bourbon cream kind of action to it, that, right? If you're going to toss it in the coffee. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. Hmm. Anyway, that wraps up Brown News. Brown News. Brown News. We'll be right back. And we're back. Let's jump into headlines. News team, assemble! Let's get down, let's get down to business. All right, first headline comes from pewresearch.org, Fact Tank, coming to us from April 2nd, 2021. Fact Tank, news and the numbers, 7% of Americans don't use the internet. Who are they? They are the people that live in the hills of West Virginia. There's an infographic here, which we'll talk about because it does break it down. But uh, why don't you hold that thought, Leon, because we'll get to that. For many Americans, going online is an important way to connect with friends and family, shop, get news, search for information. Yet today, 7% of U.S. adults say they do not use the Internet, according to a Pew Research Center survey conducted January 25th to February 8th of this year. Internet non-adoption is linked to a number of demographic variables, but is strongly connected to age, 
with older Americans continuing to be one of the least likely groups to use the internet. Today, 25% of adults ages 65 and older report never going online compared with much smaller shares of adults under the age of 65. There are no statistically significant differences in non-internet use by gender, race, and ethnicity, or community type. So the youngins in the hills use it just as much as the youngins in the city. Huh. Hmm. Well, I, I can back up some of that. I, you know, I, I was telling you right now that I've been trying to, to get a lot of things we do in the office uh, up to the 21st century. Is, is the kindest way to say that. And you know, we we have been launching a lot of new platforms, new technology for us, not for the world. I mean, email is not new, but it is to us apparently. <laughs> so uh, we're, work, we're working on that. But we have three, uh, three of the properties we manage are senior facilities and they're, it's really tough to get them onboarded onto this. I wouldn't say that they don't use it, but they certainly don't trust it. And I can't convince them otherwise because there's been so much fear mongering out there. Uh, you know, if you log on, your social security is gone. You know, that's it's not quite how it works. But if you're not familiar with it, you didn't grow up with it, you didn't figure out what to do and what not to do. I can understand why the you know, that older generation's like, you know what? I didn't learn it then. I don't need to know it now. You know, my grandkids will tell me what I need to know and I'll, I, I'll be happy. There is a certain level of savvy, I, I think, involved, yeah. I bet you every one of those people probably still write the check. Yeah, I mean, my in-laws write a check. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you talk about the idea of Venmo and you give them a demo and they're like, oh, that's really neat. You want me to sign you up? No. So some of it is, it's probably mostly fear. It's also, you know, if it works, it's fine. But, you know, you do, there are some technological advances that I think are, it's not just that they're novel and they make things easy. You're almost getting to the point where you really can't do anything without them. So if you're in that antiquated method of doing things, you're actually slowing everybody down. The other side too is that like, I mean, these people are older and they don't like change and they don't like being frustrated. And so if they didn't grow up with it, they didn't know it. And so they kind of don't want to take the time to learn it either. Cause I mean, it goes to your point. If it's, you know, if they've gone this long without it, then they don't need it. But I can imagine the frustration point. Cause that seems to be the pretty much the older generation there can't set up this. I can't set up that. I've lost my password. It's you know, kind of a mess. That's what here's, here's an irony that I just, pulled out of the bottom paragraph here. For example, 86% of adults ages 65 and older did not go online in 2000. 20 years later, that figure has fallen to just a quarter. So you're looking Mm. at a 60 point swing over the last 20 years for people ages over 65. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's 20 years longer. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're so, assuming that yeah, there were exactly. 45 year olds that are now 65. They go, yeah, of that's course right. I'm on the internet. Yeah, that's right. So the people that absolutely wouldn't are, you know, aging out. Or dead. Which is the nicest way. That's what I'm basically saying. <laughs> 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 I'm trying to be a little nicer. <laughs> Bucks the kick it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's that's really what's driving that is 
the fact that the people that weren't going to do it aren't around to do it anymore. I think that's probably just the way the technology goes. People age out of not using something and when they die, they take it with them. So tragedy, of course. The world's forcing you to do it anyway. I mean, let's just talk about what we just went through with COVID. And in the state of California, if if you wanted a vaccine and who are the people that needed it the most? The seniors. And how did they propose everybody got in line? On the internet. Mm -hmm. It was a disaster. Mm -hmm. It was a disaster. It was not well thought out. These people do not know how to get on the internet. Uh, And it's not like it was crystal clear on how to do it anyway. Uh, You know, you, you really didn't know how to navigate. You had to know how to navigate and what they were asking you to do. So yeah, not, they, they just, they lived the nightmare here. And I don't think the story is any different that, 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 that age group right now, that's about 70 above is struggling with the internet. You bring up an interesting point because uh, we railed against HBO Max a couple episodes ago. And if you look at the Amazon Prime interface, it's pretty clunky. And it's a lot like the Amazon storefront. And I was listening to a discussion, uh, a couple of pundits that I like to listen to, and they said, yeah, you know why Amazon sucks and it's going to continue to suck? Because they want 80-year-olds to get on there and buy toilet paper and paper towels. And there's truth to that. Mm-hmm. You know, their money's green, so it's got to be accessible. Uh, We'll put a pin in this one because the last thing that I want to say here is offline population has declined substantially since 2000. We talked about ages uh, 65 and older, but in terms of population percentage of U.S. adults who say they don't use the Internet, it was about half in the year 2000. And so 20 years later today, we're talking about 93% of U.S. adults use the Internet. Uh, So that's a pretty steep adoption curve. Uh, if you guys are looking at this graph here, it goes by every five years, and you can see that it's it's reducing on a almost fair to say exponential here because that's that line's got a bit of a curve to it. So, double the amount of people are using the internet every year, which I thought was pretty interesting in terms of adoption of technology. That's a good article. All right, next one is. We found Alexa. This one comes from The Verge. This one's published May 11th, 2021. And uh, it's not official. Amazon will not confirm it. And the girl that they talked to will not confirm it. But if you find any of her samples online on her website or any of the voice uh, websites, and I've done this, I've gone and and looked at her on some of the voice portals that I go through. It's her. Um, she's very sly about it. She doesn't say yes or no. They, neither her or Amazon will confirm or deny. But uh, the article goes on to say, Amazon's Alexa has a voice familiar to millions, calm, warm, and measured. But like most synthetic speech, its tones have a human origin. There was someone whose voice had to be recorded, analyzed, and algorithmically reproduced to create Alexa as we know it now. Amazon has never revealed who the original Alexa is, but journalist Brad Stone says he tracked her down, and her name is Nina Roll, a voiceover artist based in Boulder, Colorado. So now when you say, hey, Alexa, you're actually talking to Miss Nina in cyber form. That's awesome. I remember uh, when Siri was first launched and there was a big world hunt to find who is the voice of Siri. So uh, now I'm, I'm excited that we actually can see, unfortunately, for the Magic 15, they can't see it unless they go Google it themselves. But 
That's uh, she's uh, here, here's a question. Sheena Roll, R O L L E. Who do you have as your voice for Siri, or what what accent you have? Uh, my Siri's Did Irish. Oh, mine's British. Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. I don't I don't go natural. I, I want to actually make one other comment about this, and this pretty much has to go to the parenting thing. I was a a big no. I'm not putting a device in my house that can listen to me in the sense of the Alexa. And then I had a child and it is the greatest <laughs> thing in the world to put in the bedroom while you're holding them with a bottle or whatever it is. And you give it commands and it does things. And it is amazing. Whether you are trying to turn on a hatch or play lullabies or just play general music, it is amazing. So anyways, my two cents. Yeah, I mean, who, what are they going to listen to? They're going to listen to the pooping and goo-goo guys. That's got to be fun for the people in the other end. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm not quite ready for it myself because I feel like all this technology is absolutely making me the laziest human being on the planet. And I, I can't even now, I can't even get up and push a button. I have to ask some technological the idea is that you're no longer wasting the time that you used to waste it so you can be more productive with the time that you have left yeah yeah i get that anyway they uh they found siri siri is susan bennett of Mm -hmm. seattle uh of course although we can both hear bennett and roll's voices and their ai doppelgangers it's impossible to say without inside knowledge exactly what traces of the original remain Creating a synthetic voice starts with real audio samples, but this data is exhaustively quantized and remastered to such a degree that answering the question of whether the final product is the same as the original is best reserved for the shipbuilders of Theseus. And that is a very deep cut in philosophical references, which we can probably save for another time. So I'll pop the shipbuilders of Theseus and check it out myself whilst we're going on other topics. But that wraps up headlines. Uh, before before we wrap that up, I do have one one question to ask. What do you think the script looks like? That is what I want to know. I don't even want to know what Alexa is. I just want to know what they made Alexa's re- Alexa read. I have to imagine it's like 250 pages of the most frequently used words in the English language. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that would be a fun exercise to come up with that. Uh, I did see <laughs> I did see a video of morgan freeman recording his voice for ways and that's basically what it is is he turns the page he says a word stop he says a word <laughs> stop he says a word stop and that's, that's basically it horrible. oh it's hours horrible. it's hours in the sound booth and you probably drink in gallons of water and pee in every 20 minutes and that's oh, basically wow. it and then they synthesize all the words together and it's uh my kids are very interested in the chipmunk adventure where they go around the world in hot air balloons you guys remember that from when we were kids Mm -hmm. there's a moment where they synthesize dave's voice to get the babysitter to let him leave and that's basically what it is only with powerful software algorithms they've made it sound natural (laughs) but i gotta tell you my mom's got an alexa in her kitchen and i can't walk by alexa without saying alexa tell me a chuck norris joke That's awesome. And it works every I'm time. I'm telling you, like, they are what they are. And if you get used to them, 
they are actually very useful pieces of technology in your home. Damn it. Now I gotta get one. <laughs> oh, dude, so good. Check out the Echo Dot. They're cheap. Yeah. Yeah. I think we got the, the big circle one or whatever it is. It, it's an Echo ish or something. It, 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 I'm in. I'm in. Sit. Done. Knock okay. off Alexa. Got it. <laughs> Are we good on headlines? We done. Let's close it. All right. We'll be right back. And we're back. Let's go to the crank file. I could look for something in the crank file. Crank file. Whatever. We have two items coming in from the crank file today. The first one comes from Yahoo. Extremely rare three-eyed cow born on Welsh beef farm. You guys ready? I'm ready. I can't comes wait to see this. Cow. Play it on me. Oh. oh, it's right in the middle. Perfect. Like a, it's it's awesome. like a bullseye. It, like Cyclops it, himself. I was just going to say, if it loses two eyes on uh, regular positioned eyes, it is officially a Cyclops. Oh, that's creepy. Oh, my. Does it actually work? Yeah, it's a live cow. It's a real thing. No, I mean, does the eye, like, how does the eye function? Oh, that's a good question. Well, let's jump into the article. Uh, okay. This one comes from news.yahoo.com, rare three-eyed cow born Welsh farm. A farmer was left stunned when one of his calves was born with a third eye in the middle of its head. A vet spotted the third eye on the calf, which is otherwise perfectly healthy, after it was born on a farm in Gwynedd, North Wales. It mm. has now been nicknamed Isaiah on social media because one eye is higher than the others. Beef farmer Jake Jones, age 32, said he'd never seen anything like it. Well, really? I asked the vet what it was Great. while she was testing it for TB, and she said it was an eye. <laughs> okay. So is it a male or female? Uh, that's a good question. The vet shared a picture of the calf eye saying she could not believe what she spotted today, asked if anyone else had seen anything similar. Having a calf or any animal with this impairment is extremely rare. I've never heard of or seen one like this before. The calf seems perfectly healthy. We were doing other work with the herd when we noticed the fault. We will surely live a normal life for such an animal. Vets tend to see all sorts of things, cyclops, lambs, and animals born with two heads, but I've never seen anything like this before. From the outside, the extra eye looks fine. It has eyelids and eyelashes, and it is moist also as if some kind of lubricant is being secreted. But it's impossible to know if anything's going on behind the eye. She said hmm. the calf, a four-month-old Belgian Blue Cross Friesen, which is still destined for the food chain, should lead a normal life. It does not act any differently from any other calf. As a veterinary practice, we will certainly be treating it with the same care we give every animal. I call bullshit on that. It's impossible to know what's going on behind that eye. We got it. Why can't you put two eye patches on the other normally placed on us? <laughs> just let it walk in and the then shit? like see if it flinches or can it walk around? Like that's not impossible. Matter of fact, that's entertainment. Of there is no, there's no information that suggests what the gender of the cow is. But I got to know what are they going to charge for a steak from the three-eyed cow? Like yeah. this thing's got to oh. be going premium in Vegas or Tokyo, London, Singapore, New York. Like this has got to be going. Like you want some three-eyed cow steak? This thing will make you have superpowers and you can fly. 
Well, I was just thinking if it's a male, they're going to stud this thing out. I'm invisible. <laughs> Who are you talking to, Gordy? I'm over here. <laughs> mm, doesn't say. Although nicknamed Isaiah and Shiva. Sounds male. This thing's got a long life of bone and cows. Doesn't say, but if they are going to stud it out, that'll be interesting to see if we have more three-eyed cow. That was my nickname in college, actually. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Thought it was right. very mean. Let's go to Yahoo News. Uh, this one came out May fourteenth, twenty twenty-one. For those of you who'd like to follow along. Next section, 1,000 feral cats unleashed on Chicago streets to fight the rat problem. Good times. This one comes to us from KIRO, Channel 7, Chicago. This was published on May 9th, 2021. In its fight against an urban rodent infestation, the Chicago Animal Shelter has unleashed 1,000 feral cats onto the streets in the last decade. The Treehouse Humane Society started combating the rats with wild cats in 2012 with its Cats at Work program. So saith WGN, network famous for Chicago. We have a lot of our clients tell us that before they had cats, they would step outside their house and rats would actually run across their feet. Sarah Liss of Treehouse told WGN. The shelter rescues cats and some that would never become pets because they're too wild are neutered or spayed and then returned to roam the streets. Cats are placed two or three at a time into residential or commercial settings in order to provide environmentally friendly rodent control. Property and business owners provide water, shelter, food, wellness to the cats who work for them. In most cases, our cats at work become beloved members of the family or team, and some even have their own Instagram pages. Cats typically do not eat rats. When the cats are introduced to a new area, they will occasionally kill them when they first arrive. Their presence becomes a deterrent. They are actually deterring them with pheromones. That's enough to keep the rats away. Chicago was considered the, quote, rattiest city in America for six years in a row by the extermination company Orkin. Residents interested in feral cat can apply for them online. <laughs> Can't you recreate pheromones, though? Like, that should just be it. Just spray around cat pheromones. I don't know. I hate cats. Fascinating That's question. My... <laughs> that goes without saying. I don't, I don't I really have anything wrong with cats. I just don't like any animal that treats me like an equal. Yeah, they're smug. They they know they're in charge. You know, they think they're the, the highest level of pet because they shit in a box. Not impressed. Not impressed. They shit outside like the dog. But you, Jones, any thoughts on the uh, <laughs> feral cats in Chicago? I, I, no, I, I, I do not. Uh, I, my wife is highly allergic to cats. And so. <gasps> I always use it as a threat and like, you better be nice to me or I'll bring a cat home. I was just going <laughs> to start the, start the clock on, on how quickly Chicago is going to release a bunch of feral dogs. Feral <laughs> Chicago <laughs> cats. Tell you what's going on here. You go down the loop or south of the river. You're not going to want to be a rat. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually We don't like rats around Chicago. We don't like rats in Chicago. You're going to do that. You better go out to Indianapolis or crawl your ass into the lake. <laughs> all right that's the crank file oh i love the crank file let's go to our special love edition it. of the crank file because florida this one comes to us from nature nature.com published 3 may 2021 you guys ready for this one mm-hmm 
First genetically modified mosquitoes released in the United States. Biotech firm Oxitech launches controversial field test of its insects in Florida after years of pushback from residents and regulatory complications. After a decade of fighting for regulatory approval and public acceptance, a biotechnology firm has released genetically engineered mosquitoes into the open air in the Florida Keys over objections to some local critics. They're testing a method for suppressing populations of wild Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, which can carry diseases such as Zika, Dengue, Chikungunya, and yellow fever. Oxitec, a firm based in Abingdon, UK, developed the mosquitoes as previously field tested them in Brazil, Panama, Cayman Islands, and Malaysia. So similar to the feral cats ideas, they, they use methods to sterilize the predator and then send them into the wild. Only the case with the cats is the cats are supposed to just keep the rats away. They're not actually supposed to kill them. In this case, we're getting into some Longshanks territory here. If we can't get them out, we'll breed them out. The problem is with Florida is it's full of mosquitoes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well played. The article goes on to say that genetically engineered males carry a gene that passes to their offspring and kills female progeny in early larval stages. It's such misogyny. Male offspring won't die, but instead will become carriers of the gene and pass it to future generations. As more females die, the Aedes aegypti population should dwindle. And so the idea based on what the article says is they put these boxes in random people's yards that are participating in the trial. And the box just releases these genetically modified male mosquitoes as they germinate and come to growth. And then they go out and, you know, brown chicken, brown cow, and they get it done. And the idea is that by mating with the females, they sterilize them unless they're going to give birth to boys that carry the gene. And so eventually you get an army of males that will eventually die off from sadness and loneliness. And how do we get our hands on these? Well, here's a question, though. Wouldn't this create another kind of problem now? Like you're not having any mosquitoes out there? I don't know. What's the purpose of mosquitoes necessarily? Well, if you're familiar with one of our crank files from a previous episode, my prediction is that these lonely male mosquitoes are just going to get drunk. (laughs) (laughs) I remember. Drunk. Yeah, I... I don't know. I've, I've heard the whole gambit that, you know, if mosquitoes disappeared, the world would still be just fine. I don't buy it. I think they're a pretty valuable food source at the bottom of the chain. So I don't think, I don't think you're not going to get rid of them forever, but what you can do is you can get, you can severely stump them. So you're not going to get a horrible pandemic type spread of what they're carrying right now and i'm all for that i mean if you get to the point where you're like oh we need more mosquitoes out here then you just release the ones that don't do that you know but i think yeah i mean if they have the possibility of creating mosquitoes then yeah if they find out that mosquitoes are necessary for the ecosystem then they'll just make more mosquitoes yeah Um, this one here sounds like an interesting idea because it's eliminating these diseases that these mosquitoes are carriers for so this is a, a supply side problem uh, Oxitec employees have taken precautions against vandalism by placing their mosquito boxes on private fenced-in properties and not disclosing their precise locations to the public. Although, if you look at the image, it's a bright aqua teal blue. 
So anybody mm -hmm. that walks by one of those things that doesn't want the program to go is simply going to hop the fence, crack that thing open. <laughs> <laughs> Little blood suckers. Kill them all. I hate them. And that wraps up the crank file. Oh, Florida. We'll be right back. And we're back. We can make kids right now. That's why we're here. It's not the years. It's the mileage. This one comes to us from fatherly.com. It's an older one. This was published in April of 2016, but I thought it would be relevant since we have Mr. Jones, new parent on the line here. And because Leon and I all have uh, kindergarten age children. Uh, in 2009, there was a book by Poe Bronson and Ashley Merriman called Nurture Shock. It's one of those modern classics in the parenting genre that takes on all of the conventional wisdom, popular myths, outdated and discredited research you've been fed. Uh, but alas, when you get home from work, better call, better call Saul trumps deep data about discipline and sleep training. So it sits on the shelf. So this is probably a tomb of very insightful, long content. Uh, so this article breaks into... There's four things that they go into in the book that I think are interesting. And, and I want to talk about it for the parenting segment, because these are things that I run into as a parent, one as a father of two, as they interact with each other, because they're always watching each other and they're always watching me. Uh, and then you guys have unique opportunities because Jones, yours is brand new and Leon, yours is a girl. Um, number one, praise is screwing up your kids. I thought this was interesting In experiments where one group of kids were praised for being smart and the other group wasn't the non praised kids consistently chose to accept more challenging tasks. Whereas the praised kids stuck with tasks they knew would be easy. Think about anybody that we knew growing up that was praised all the time that their parents just thought were wonderful. What have they become? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And you know what yeah. I always I always struggle with, and you you know this. You don't want to crush your kids' confidence because there's nothing more important than that. And once they lose it, boy, that's heartbreaking. And you just want to make sure that they continue having that confidence. So you boost them up. But this actually makes a hell of a lot of sense. That, you know, sometimes you gotta neg them a little bit. <laughs> like, hmm, you're looking rough today, child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously uh, you don't want them walking on water. They need to know that there are good days and bad days and, and good things and bad things. Um, here's an interesting one that I get from not only my nine-year-old, but I also get it from the way my five-year-old looks at me sometimes. And Leon, I think you can appreciate this. Research shows that kids as young as seven are onto their parents' bullshit. And showered <laughs> with praise. <laughs> when showered with praise, they are just as skeptical of the sincerity as adults are. They know. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, they spend the first 10 years of their life, especially the first seven, figuring everything out to a level that us adults will never figure anything out. It's incredible, right? You just sit there and watch it. You're like, how did you memorize that? How did you how did you remember that thing from three weeks ago? So crystal clear. But their brains are little sponges and they understand your facial expressions. They understand your tone and they understand sarcasm better than you'll ever think they'll understand it because they that's what they're trained to do is 
figure out the communication style. That's the evolutionary part of their life that they're going to figure you out. And to think that they haven't figured it out by the age of seven, you're, you're naive. Yeah. I mean, they're watching you and they watch how you react to things. Oh yeah. Uh, so what you can do with this is don't stop praising your kids altogether. Try and be more specific and tactical about how you do it. Obviously sincerity is important. Don't praise them if you don't believe it. Um, praise effort over traits. This is a tough one uh, because as parents, we automatically think that our kid is the most intelligent, uh, most attractive. And I think that's just a natural part of being parents, but you're so smart doesn't work as well as you tried so hard. And I think this is tough because you look at kids and the things that come out of their mouth and you want to say, wow, you are so smart. Well, that's a gift, but I love how you came up with that. I love how much effort you put into that. I love how your little brain works. Those are a little bit better in terms of how you can praise them for what they do, not necessarily for what they are. okay. Discuss mistakes and strategies for improvement with your kids, but do it like a loving parent, not like a Texas football coach. So like, buddy, that's not working. Let's, let's figure out how we can do this together. Or like my kids get BO when they do exercise. And I like to let them know you are ripe, son. Let's go throw you in the bath. I'm like, dad, don't say that. Well, I got to say it, man. You stink. <laughs> oh man. You're only a couple of years away from ax body spray days. Oh yeah. Like your body odor is so bad. <laughs> it kills germs, boy. Let's go get in the shower. <laughs> All right. Number two, sleep deprivation is screwing up your kids. Now this is probably going to apply more to the teenage era uh, because kids will simply sleep when they get tired. How many times has your four-year-old just passed out and my five-year-old will sleep standing up if he's tired enough. So I'm not too worried about sleep deprivation when they're little, but when they get older, this is a serious thing. So think back to, think back to the high school years when we had to be at school at seven, we got out, mm -hmm. uh, Got out of three. Uh, at some point, we had to get jobs. So 90% of American parents surveyed think their children are getting enough sleep. But 60% of teens surveyed reported extreme daytime sleepiness. Uh, you can go ahead and blame Snapgram or Instaface, whatever the kids call it. But it doesn't change the fact that teens don't get enough sleep. Even worse, younger kids are sacrificing sleep for homework, extracurricular activities, and quality time with their guilt-ridden workaholic parents. Some scientists believe sleep problems during the formative years can cause permanent changes in brain structure. Links have been found between sleep deprivation and the rise of ADHD. Sleep deprivation is linked to childhood obesity. There's a strong correlation between lack of sleep and poor academic performance. What do you guys think? I think the sleep deprivation thing is very real. I don't listen to uh, Joe Rogan a lot, but there was one time he had an episode somebody turned me on to where he had the sleep doctor on there and they talked about an hour and a half about how important sleep is and you know what different types of things cause good sleep and bad sleep and its effect on you and you know all the different stages of sleep. It's real. You know, I, I, I can tell, as I'm sure both of you can, when your spouse or your kid didn't get enough sleep. I mean, you never really pick it up in yourself because you're kind of always, you know, tired anyway. It just feels like you're just always tired, but you can pick it up on somebody else pretty quick. And uh, there's something to it. I, you can I absolutely tell when the kid's tired. Their entire oh, mood yeah. changes. They become little demons. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so what can you do about all this? Well, cool it with the overscheduling. All that enrichment and college application fodder won't even stick in the adult brain of a sleep-deprived child. It's a tough one. You want to get kids yep. into a good school. You want to make sure that they're primed for later years of academic achievement. What did they tell us when we were kids? Do everything. So you had to be in a social club. You had to play a sport. You had to be in the honor roll. You had to have extracurricular activities. Otherwise, you couldn't get into college. Also uh, tough one. Dr. Judith Owens says you should think of sleep as a basic necessity for your child's well-being. Would you let your daughter ride in a car without a seatbelt? You have to think of it the same way. That's that's tough. That's it's a tough one. It's a tough balance, I think, for parents is the competition to get into college, to do this, do that, um, or at least in some sense, get social kind of uh, sporting or whether it's the arts, pianos, and different things. So, yeah. I'm going to skip number three. Number four is your lies are screwing up your kid. You think that your kid would never lie to you. And if they did, you would know you're wrong. In study after study, parents, teachers, and strangers perform just slightly better than a coin toss in determining if a child is lying to them. This one's for you, Leon. By age four, if it seemed like they could get away with it, 80% of children studied cheated on a game and then lied when asked if they cheated. Science. I'm I'm experiencing it right now because like quick parenting story. Uh, you know, we have this routine. You go in, you brush your teeth, you do the whole thing, you, you go to the you go to the bathroom, we read a couple books, she goes to bed. Well, she went in, and we realized we skipped the bathroom part. I said, go in there, go to the bathroom, go potty, come back. She was in there for all of 30 seconds comes back out nothing flushes you don't hear any faucets nothing she comes back in i'm like did you wash your hands yep did you even go potty (laughs) yep are you lying to me nope all right well i guess i have to call santa because santa always knows (laughs) it doesn't matter what time of year you use that guy to use a lie to, to break up a lie so I said, let me give Santa a call because he'll know. And then, you know, if you're if you're not telling if you're telling the truth, then fine. No, no, don't tell it. I didn't. I didn't go potty. I know. Oh God. Like, yeah. So you have to call him on it and and think that you have some kind of crystal ball that will always know. But I'm definitely in that stage where she's testing the fence to figure out, did that lie? Did that work? And I'm sure she's pulling stuff over on us, but you know, the blatantly obvious ones. Yeah. I mean, with few exceptions, four-year-olds lie at once every two hours and six-year-olds lie once every hour. And it's really difficult to tell whether or not they're telling the truth if you can't be there. Now at home, at that age, they don't know that sound travels and they're not smart enough to hire a lookout. So there are ways for you to be aware as a parent when something does or does not happen. But if you're not if you're not within the vicinity of identifying the evidence, it's a 50-50 shot because they'll cry if you call them on it. And like, I don't want to make my children cry. And I don't, I have to assess, is this a do or die situation here? Is this a battle that I want to pick with them over whether or not they did something? You know, you end up just saying, well, go wash your hands twice. Harsh punishment for lies only makes kids better liars. They will work harder to become masters of deception and double down on lies to avoid punishment. Young kids lie to make their parents happy by telling them what they think they want to hear. We model dishonesty to our kids with all of our little white lies that cover up social awkwardness or hurt feelings. And we encourage kids to withhold information from adults by chastising them for tattling. 
Snitches get stitches. That's what I tell her. Yep. What you can do about it. Well, two lies make a truth. If you lie to your children by saying, even if you insert crime here, I won't be upset with you. If you tell the truth, I'll be really happy. Your kids will likely trend toward the truth. They're trying to make you happy, and that's why they lie. Uh, And also become comfortable with your hypocrisy, which is a very difficult thing to do. When you're trying to explain the nuance of social anxiety to a child, they just don't get it. Don't point. That person's fat. Yeah, but don't say that. It's a it's a very difficult thing to run into because they they say it like it is. You know, they're very strategic about lying, but when they're describing something, like my five-year-old is fucking hysterical. And I'm like, buddy, please don't say that. They just have this, they have this wonderful little observation about the world and they they say it like it is. You know me, I don't get upset about a lot. I mean, you can call me just about anything in the book, but when I'm called a hypocrite in any way, that's when I get defensive because it's one of those things I really, really dislike. And I don't think it's hypocrisy. It's, it's teaching, it's training. I don't expect, you know, it's, it's the do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. I don't agree with that as much as, look, yeah, I'm having a bourbon right now. Bell, you can't have a bourbon, you know? Can't <laughs> that That's what it is. Like, you're not ready for this part of your life yet, you know? You, you, it's not polite to say that. It's not. <laughs> now, when you get to my age and you've had just about enough of it, okay, then you can go ahead and say it, but not now. You know, it's the whole bad word thing. It's, they're going to hear them all the time. Don't don't say that word. So I don't know. I think hypocrisy is a bit harsh for that, for what what you're doing as a parent. But at the same time, I, I understand there are people out there that are, you know, that they use that phrase, do as I say, not as I do too much. You know, and that that in, is confusing. To kids. In the objective sense, it is hypocritical to tell your children not to do something. The way I look at it is it's our job as parents to train these kids to be able to go out and integrate into society. And so you want to make sure that you teach them little rules that apply out in public because kids don't understand the difference between in private and in public at that age. So everything is in public for the same reason that you don't cross the crosswalk in case a kid's watching, like in reality, yeah, go ahead, jaywalk. It's no problem. There's no cars coming, but there's when, when children don't understand that there's a private and a public, everything is public to them. Then you got to fault to the lowest common denominator, which is don't do that. Don't say that. Don't be that. Because when they get older, they can understand the nuance of it. And I think if they ever call you on it, when you're older, you can say, yeah, but that's, you now understand the dichotomy of what happens behind closed doors is nobody's business. When you're out in public, everybody sees it. And so that's kind of, I understand that as objectively hypocritical, but a four-year-old doesn't understand the nuance of ego and shame and all of that. They just, their brains can't comprehend that level of complexity. So that wraps up our show for this evening, gentlemen. Enjoy your Friday.
place is dead anyway, man. <laughs>